One of the first assignments that I had to complete as a college freshman was for a class called The Christian Life. And our professor, Mr. Warren, asked us to write a one-page testimony. Now, for those of you who don't speak uh, Christianese fluently, uh, your testimony is the story of how you became a Christian. Most of us in that class, many of us at least, had parents who were also Christians. We grew up in the faith, but your testimony, your testimony is the story of how you, how the faith became your own, how you became a believer. Uh, We wrote our papers, we turned them in, he read them all, he passed them back, and he said, these were excellent, I enjoyed reading them very much. There was one problem, 90% of you, uh, including me, by the way, he said, 90% of you left out the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Now, we had included what was central to our faith, Jesus died for our sins, but most of us left out the resurrection How can you tell your testimony without the resurrection, or can you? Um, I thought about that assignment every now and then, and I wonder. Most of us in that room had had years of Sunday school under our belt. Uh, Lots of children's programs, multiple VBSs during the summer, youth group. How could we leave out the resurrection? And I think the answer to that question is that most of us are not very good at explaining the connection between the resurrection, which, of course, we celebrate full with full-throated enthusiasm today, and your own personal faith. On Memorial Day, we gather, we remember. It's very clear, the connection. We, we make the connections between the sacrifices that were made and our freedoms as citizens. That's an easy connection to draw I'm not sure we have an easy, as, as much of an easy time explaining the connection between resurrection and your personal faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, my hope this morning is to show you that connection in the Bible. And to do so, I want to direct your attention to the book of Romans chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me again. We already read from Luke chapter 4. A little bit further to the right is the book of Romans, and I want to read from Romans chapter 4, verse 25. We're going to look at several different passages in Romans, but for right now, we'll start in verse 25, and I will mention there a, a, a note before we read it about this week's sermon. We're going to focus on one verse. We're going to talk about Romans 4:25, actually the second half of Romans 4:25, but about 60% of the sermon is introduction. So a really long introduction, and then we're going to get to this verse. That might help you if you're trying to take uh, notes this morning. Romans 4.25. Look with me at what it says. He, that's the Lord Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's a very simple sentence. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our resurrection. Two verbs, was delivered and was raised. And then these two phrases that that modify those verbs, for our sins and for our justification. We're very familiar with the first part of this verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins. It's what we mark on Good Friday. It's the second part of the verse that I think that doesn't seem as to fit as well in in our mind. What is the relationship between resurrection and justification? I hope to show that to you. That's that's the main question we're after. After this long 
uh, long introduction, I hope to give you four ways in which the resurrection is related to our justification. But first, a little context here. Uh, let's get a firmer grip on this word justification. What does the word justification mean? Justification is a theological word. It's the, the main topic of the first several chapters of Romans. Justification. The question is, how can human beings find forgiveness before God? How, how can this broken relationship between human beings and our Creator be repaired? The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, spent the first three or four chapters here talking about this broken relationship. All human beings, regardless of creed, race, religion, education, wealth, geography, all of us are guilty. He summarizes this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Would you look with me there? I want to read Romans 3, verses 10 and following here. Romans 3, 10 says, As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. That will give you bad breath. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a bleak description. Um, How accurate do you think it is? How much of it describes you? One of the challenges of reading this, of course, is that Paul is not thinking about other people as the standard. We're not thinking about ourselves in comparison to others. God is the standard in Romans and, and Paul is comparing us with God himself. So how do you measure up? Everyone has some idea about what's wrong in the world. Everyone has this innate sense that there is something wrong in the world and we want it to be made right. Uh, last week I finished watching the first season of a television show that had made its way from CBS online. I watched the whole season and none of it was very good. Um, I didn't enjoy it really very much. A part of it I enjoyed. I'm going to tell you about it. But the characters seemed miscast. Their development when the story was weak. uh, The dialogue was forced. There was no charm about the story at all. But I watched it. And do you know why I watched it? Because, well, it was a police procedural. So every episode started with somebody getting murdered. And every episode ended with somebody getting arrested. The good guys won, the bad guys lost, and it all happened in 45 minutes. It was completely satisfying. Uh, Very few problems in the world can be solved in 45 minutes. The show was mildly entertaining. But I watched it for about an hour because chaos was controlled and things were set right. People enjoy shows like that. You like shows like that. You like shows that begin, there's chaos, and then ah, peace. Uh, Things are made right. There's a a good conclusion. The good guys win. The bad guys are punished. You You know, the reason that we enjoy those shows like that is because there is this longing within us. There's this certainty. The world, there's something wrong with the world, and we long for it to be set right. We want things to be made right. And for thousands of years, Christians have said that what is wrong in the world is that we're in rebellion against God. 
We are not the people that he intended us to be. There is a broken relationship between God and human beings, and that rebellion makes us worthy of punishment. In fact, fact, if I can say this without uh, sounding silly, it is God's job as creator to fix the world that he made. It's what he does. When I'm out and about in the morning uh, walking my dog, there is this uh, couple who lives in our neighborhood a little bit that way, and they walk their dog in the morning, this little tiny fuzzy furry shizu puppy. Not a puppy, it's a dog, kind of, if you can call that thing a dog. But anyway, uh, uh, when I, if, if this shizu is very confident that he owns the neighborhood, and if he ever sees me on the sidewalk, oh my goodness, he barks, he snowls, snarls, he growls, he pulls against the leash to get at me. I used to walk with my 75-pound Bernese Mountain Dog, Stella, big black dog. She's the kind of dog that makes people cross the street when we're coming down the road. It's awesome. This Shizu would see us and start barking, and Stella would cry. She would cry. It was sad. It was sad. Now, if that dog weighed 100 pounds and it could escape from its owner and it would go after me, and, and, and I would be dead. I would be dead. But imagine here if, if the, um, the, that little dog did manage to get away and he bit me. Now, who would be responsible for this dog? Who, who would be responsible for the repair to my body because of their mean little shih tzu puppy that bit me? Well, the owner would, right? So the, the dog, the dog, of course, would, would, I suppose, bear some responsibility. But the owner, this is your creature. You're responsible for his behavior. And if he misbehaves, you're responsible to fix it. This is God's world. He made it and everything in it. And as the supreme being, he will repair the damage that we have done the damage we've done to ourselves, the damage we've done to one another, the dishonor that we have shown him. Now, at its heart, the word justification means to declare someone right or someone just, to declare that they're innocent, more than innocent, that they're whole or righteous or good. And the Bible says that's what God does. You're familiar with this. So, Imagine you walk into one of your children's rooms, a child's room, and it's a disaster area. It's a complete disaster area. And uh, you go and you find them and you say, you must, you must clean your room. You may not eat food in this house or watch anything on a screen until your room is clean. So they work at it and make some efforts, clean up the room, and then they call you in to watch. And you have the opportunity there to declare, to justify the room to declare that it is whole, that it is righteous, that it is good and orderly. The Bible tells us that God declares sinful people righteous. He, he declares them whole. Now, how, how can that be? How can God possibly declare guilty people and make them just? If a judge was presented with incontroversial, incontrovertible evidence that someone was guilty and they let them go free, he would not be a just judge. She does not belong on the bench if that's what she does. Now, the most common solution, of course, that human beings offer to this problem of how can God declare us right is by uh, uh, we human beings, we just need to do good things and God will declare us right. We need to be moral. 
or we need to follow the rules, at least most of them, and then God, well, he'll overlook the rest of your misdeeds and you'll be justified. Just do some things, some good things. Imagine you say to your child, this room is a disaster, you've got to clean this up. And uh, he or she is in there working and, and they call you in and you look and you say, this is still a mess. And they say, no, 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 there were pencil shavings on the desk in this little spot. I cleaned it up. See that? Isn't that good enough? No. No. We say to God when we try to clean up our own lives, look, God, isn't that enough? So the problem with trying to justify yourselves in the presence of God is that you cannot possibly do enough good deeds. You're not good enough. Paul says that we're justified by faith. God credits faith with righteousness. That faith is counted as righteousness. Look at Romans 3.21. He says in Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this declaration, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to received by faith. Here's another way to say what Paul said in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. God presented him as a sacrifice for our sins. This is the reason that Jesus died, for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. He suffered the consequence we deserve because of our sins, and he died, and God justifies those who believe in him. Look at Romans 3.25. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse uh, 26, actually. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Nope, sorry, I did want to begin in the middle of verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden, why didn't you destroy them? When David committed adultery, why why didn't you punish him like he deserved? When Abraham lied about his wife, why, why, why didn't you discipline the way they deserve? Ah, well, he had a plan. He was going to present his son. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate, well, verse 25, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness in the past, and he did it this way to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time because he is righteous, he's just, and he's the one who justifies people. Who? Those who have faith in Jesus. Now, in chapter 4, Paul turns to a case study. Just in case you have any questions about how this works, look at chapter 4, verse 18. We have a case study. His name is Abraham. Against all hope, uh, we're going to look at Abraham's response to a promise God made. Against all hope, chapter 4, verse 18, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Here's the promise. You'll have children, Abraham. Abraham didn't have any children. You're going to have children, Abraham. Is Abraham going to believe? Verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Not a kind way to describe your wife. 
verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, God had made a promise to Abraham. It was a promise that he would have a son, and, and through that son, many, many descendants. Abraham believed the promise, and even under those extraordinary circumstances, he believed the promise. Now, I told some of you about a recent trip that I had made, uh, I made to a maternity ward. So I was at the maternity ward uh, of the hospital visiting one of the newborn babies at the church. And I left the hospital. I was leaving the maternity ward. I got in the elevator, and this young man followed me. He had flowers, and he had balloons. He was carrying them from his room to take them to the car from his wife's room. And this young man looked at me as I was standing the air, on the elevator, and he said, Are you here to visit a grandchild? And I looked at him, and I said, no. <laughs> now, you may wonder, um, after you give someone an evil look like that and tell them no like that, it's hard to tell them that you're a pastor. But I persevered. I persevered. I'm a pastor. I'm here to bring the joy of the Lord. <laughs> right? It's a real blessing to his heart. His heart was blessed. So picture it here. Maternity ward, 4,000 years ago. All right? Young man's on the elevator, and an old, old man gets on the elevator with him. An old man. And the young man says, Are you here visiting a, a, a great, great, great grandchild? <laughs> and Abraham says, No, I'm here with my wife. She just had a baby. Guess how old she is? Guess. Go ahead, guess. Yeah, you'll never guess, I'll tell you. She's 90, and I'm 100, and she just had a baby, right? Okay, Abraham, excited. Notice here the nature of Abraham's faith. That's, that, the, the emphasis here is the nature of his faith. He knew that it was improbable, if not impossible, for 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women to have babies. That's why he said in verse 19, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. But he, he believes, verse 18, look what verse 18 says. He believed, uh, well, actually verse 17, right at the end. He believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Or verse 21, he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. We know, we know we're not fools. We know that it is improbable, that it is outside of our expectations that God would become a human being, that he would be our sin bearer. We know we are believing something that cannot be tested and repeated in a lab. We, we know that. We know it's unusual that he would die on a cross and rise from the dead. We know that's not an everyday occurrence, but we, like Abraham, we take God at his word. This passage is about Abraham's resurrection. It's about Jesus' resurrection, and it's about your resurrection too. Do you believe that? Those who believe like Abraham are justified on the basis of the payment that was made by the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross. Now... That is the way we're used to speaking about justification. Christ died for our sins. 
But Romans 4.25 says there is a connection between the resurrection and your justification. Between the resurrection and your justification. What's that connection between the resurrection and your justification? Notice in verse 25 that Paul uses the word for. He uses the word for in two different ways. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. That is, he died to pay for our sins. Our sins caused his death. But our justification did not cause his resurrection. Here's how I might paraphrase verse 25. He was delivered over to death to pay for our sins and was raised to life to provide our justification. Now, what's the connection between resurrection and justification? Now the introduction is over, and I want to suggest to you four ways in which the resurrection and justification are connected. First, the resurrection announces that Christ's sacrifice for our sin was accepted. The resurrection announces that Christ's sacrifice for our sin was accepted. Payment was made in full, and it was accepted by God. If Christ has not risen from the dead, how do we know that God accepted the payment on our behalf? You remember Tim Keller's illustration about the receipt? I used it a few weeks ago. We talked about it a few weeks ago one Sunday morning. My wife sometimes pokes fun at me when I buy things and have to return them to the store. I want, I want the bag. I want the original bag that the item came in from the store. Don't give me a bag that says Lowe's to make a return to JCPenney. I'm not going to do it. I want the bag that came from the store. And I want the receipt. Everything's got to be together. Well, the receipt's important. You walk in the store. You don't want anybody to think that the items you have in the bag that you're returning, that you purchased them felon- or that you procured them feloniously, right? So you can pull out the receipt and say, here, here's the proof. Here's the proof that payment was made for this item. I paid for it. And the resurrection is God's grand announcement. Your sins have been paid for. Payment has been both made and accepted. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if the Lord Jesus had not literally physically risen from the grave, we would never be certain that he had ever finished his work. If he has died for our sins, we must not only be certain that he has died, but that he has finished dying and that there is no longer death. When God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, he has done everything, he has fulfilled every demand, here he is risen, therefore I am satisfied with him. Actually, uh, that's kind of what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1, the introduction to this book. Romans 1.1, Paul begins his book by saying this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, set apart for the good news, to preach the good news. It's the good news, verse 2, the gospel, that he promised, that God promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, And who's the gospel, the good news about? It regards his son, who as to his earthly life, his, his parentage, was a descendant of David. Jesus was descended from David through Mary. Verse 4, And through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. You should put that phrase together. All goes together. The Son of God in power. The Son of God in power. By His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, Jesus did not become the Son of God when he rose from the dead, but he was declared to be the Son of God in power. The resurrection is a grand announcement whereby God proclaims Jesus has finished his work, the payment has been made, it's been accepted in full, he is the Son of God in power. The resurrection is as a declaration like your dad wanted to make when you walked across the platform. He wanted to yell out, that's my boy. Jesus rises from the dead and God says, son of God in power. So the resurrection is the announcement that Christ's sacrifice for our sin was accepted. That's number one. Now number two builds on that. The resurrection shows us that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for us all. The resurrection shows us that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all of us. It shows uh, that justification is possible for everyone. This is one step further. Okay, So payment for sin was made. That's true. But there's more. There's more to Christ's power, more to his righteousness. It was more than just a match for your sin. Death laid hold of him. He really did die. But death couldn't keep him. Now think about this in, in, in monetary terms. That's maybe an easy way to do that. I had a debt to God I could not pay. Jesus paid it in full. The resurrection says Jesus paid the debt in full. But the resurrection also says that when Jesus made the payment, he made it in full, it didn't empty all of his pockets. He still had money left over. Remember, Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. I mention this because some of you wonder, some of you are pretty convinced that you have run out your credit limit. You know your sin and you're pretty sure you've overspent or at least you've come very close to overspending even what Jesus covered on the cross. Again, if we're still thinking in in monetary terms, Jesus gave you a gift card of his own righteousness and you're pretty sure that you have uh, spent the whole card at the outlet mall of sin. It's got to be low. This card's got to be low. It's got to be used up by, by now. Can I assure you that Christ has within himself more than enough to pay your debt? It was not even an even exchange. All of Christ is, all of who Christ is for your sin. You may be a good sinner, but you're not that good at it. He, he rose again. So the resurrection announces that Christ's payment for sin was accepted, and it announces that Christ's payment for sin was more than sufficient. Here's a third connection between the resurrection and your justification. Christ's resurrection makes it possible for him to apply justification to you. It makes it possible for him to apply justification to you. Jesus is alive. He's the one upon whom we call to rescue us from our sin. So the Christian faith is a personal faith. Christianity is not merely an affirmation of a creed. It's not merely signing off on a checklist of beliefs. It's not merely a philosophy. It's not a list of things that we do or truths that we subscribe to. Christianity is trust in a person, in the Lord Jesus. And he's alive. He's alive to hear everyone who calls upon him. He's the one who applies his own death to us. 
I was fascinated several years ago, I don't know how many it was, probably 10, wasn't it, that Pope John Paul, when he died, all the ceremonies that went around his death. What do they do when a pope dies? Well, one of the things that they have to do, they didn't show this on television, it probably it was a good thing, is they have to take a little hammer, by tradition, you take a little hammer and you tap the head of the pope, the, the person that you believe is deceased. And you've got to call out his name. Three times you've got to do this. So they tap him on the head. Hopefully it's a small hammer. They tap him on the head, and they say, Carl! That was Pope John Paul's given name. Carl! 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 And if he doesn't answer after three taps and three shouts, then he is truly dead. Uh, it's an ancient tradition. I'm sure someone took his pulse, too, to confirm that. But this is... The ancient tradition, this is what they do. And then they take his papal ring, the sign of his, his rule, his authority, and they take it off his hand and they use that hammer to pound the ring and the seal on it to, flat so that no one can do anything in the Pope's name because the Pope is dead. He can no longer be the Pope. But Jesus is alive and you can call on him. He's, he's the rescuer and he's alive to rescue you. Remember, uh, Paul wrote this in Romans 10, 13. You need to look at it with me. But listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? We call on him because he's alive. Charles Spurgeon said, you could not feel any confidence in a dead Christ. You would say, he sees corruption, yet the true Christ was never to see corruption. He's dead. And what can a dead Christ do for us? Beloved, the dying Christ has purchased for us our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. The risen Christ has come to bring it to us, and herein we rest. Now, there's one more way that the, crucif- uh, the resurrection and justification connect to one another. Here's the final way that I want to share this morning. The resurrection of Jesus pro- provides future resurrection for us. The resurrection of Jesus provides future resurrection for us. See, the end of justification is life. The purpose of justification is life, so that we can have life with God. And Jesus is alive, and he provides resurrection for us. 1 Thessalonians says that Jesus himself is going to descend from heaven someday, and and the dead in Christ will rise. He's first, we'll follow. For hundreds of years, Christians have been gathering at at, uh, cemeteries for sunrise services. And one reason, of course, they do that is because the first resurrection took place at a tomb. The women went to the tomb early in the morning. But Christians also go to cemeteries because of our hope in the resurrection that Jesus is alive. And when he returns, that cemetery is going to be a happening place. There's going to be a lot going on there. It's a resting place, but it's certainly not a final resting place. All those we have lost, all those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be raised to life like the Lord Jesus himself. He was raised to life for our justification. This passage is about Abraham's resurrection. This passage is about Jesus' resurrection. This passage is about your resurrection. Do you believe that? If you do not, I, I would invite you to do so today. Christ died for your sins and rose again that you might receive life in his name. Not because you're a good person or a moral person, not because of rituals you have done, but because you have turned to him and you have believed. Andrew Carroll's an author. 
he has collected and published war letters. That's what he's given his career over to, uh, collecting and publishing war letters. And uh, one, of his sec- uh, one of the collections, a section of his collection, contains letters from soldiers who never returned home from the war. Uh, David Kerr, one of his, the letters in his collection is by a young man named David Kerr. David Kerr was a student at Columbia University. He dropped out of college to join the United States Army to fight in World War I. And on September 11th, uh, 19, sorry, September 11th, 1918, he sent a letter to his mother. And he sent it to his mother, and he was thinking about his fiancée, Mary, and his sister, Elizabeth. But here's, here's what the letter that he wrote. Tomorrow, the first totally American drive commences, and it gives me inexpressible joy and pride to know that I shall be present to do my share. Should I go under, therefore, I want you to know that I went without any terror of death and that my chief worry is the grief my death will bring to those so dear to me. Since having found myself in Mary, there has been much to make life sweet and glorious, but death, while distasteful, is in no way terrible. It is, he's comforting his mother. I feel wonderfully strong to do my share well, and for my sake you must try not, try to drown your sorrow in the pride and satisfaction the knowledge that I died well in so clean a cause as is ours should bring you. Remember how proud I have always been of your superb pluck. Keep Elizabeth's future in mind and don't permit my death to bow your head. My personal belongings will all be sent to you. Your good taste will tell you which to send to Mary. May God bless you and keep you, dear heart, and be kind to a little Elizabeth and those others I love so well, David. So the battle in France that started the next day, it was a three-day offensive, massive American movement. 7,000 Americans died in that battle, and David Kerr was among them. So his mother got this letter. She got this letter, I'm sure, several days after he had already died. Perhaps she received a letter when she had already been informed by the United States government that her son had died. Now, what's that like? Some of you know what this is like. The war is won. The war is, is over. Uh, the war has won. There's been victory. But your soldier, your marine, your sailor didn't return. Joy. There's joy for your country. We won. We won the battle. The victory's over. Peace has been secured. But there's no peace in your heart because there's an empty seat at your kitchen table. So... What's, what's that like? He's dead. He's not coming home. She's dead. She's not coming home. That's not how we celebrate the resurrection. The war is won and Jesus has come home. Well, that's for the Father to say. From here we say the war is won and Jesus has gone home. And he'll come again to receive us unto himself and we'll be with him forever. That's good news. It's good news. Let us, brothers and sisters, say it again, shall we, this morning. He is risen. risen Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do so with great joy, because the one that you appointed Son of God in power is indeed risen from the dead. Lord, how grateful we are that Your Son, our Savior, always lives to make intercession for us. 
He's there to answer us when we call upon him. And his sacrifice is more than sufficient for our sins, indeed for the sins of the whole world. Lord, I am grateful to you uh, as we gather together this morning, this body of believers, for the rescue work you have done in us. Fill us with joy at the prospect of inviting others to hear and to believe this good news. Make it so that our church is increasingly effective in, in helping people learn and believe this message. Our children that are downstairs, the babies in the nursery, our neighbors, those we love and know, make us increasingly effective for the glory of our risen Savior and Lord. Fill us with joy today, we pray, because Christ is risen indeed. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen. We're going to have our moment of meditation.